Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. On this 178th episode of the podcast, I will be talking about brown trout. But before I get to that, I did want to remind everyone that in two weeks, I will be having another fly fishing accusations podcast. What's that? That is an opportunity for me to respond in this format to a question or a comment, or it hasn't happened yet, but I'm waiting for it, accusation about something that I have said on the podcast or written on the website, or maybe even a picture I put on social media. Feel free. Everything is fair game. So send me an email, Matthew at castingacross.com. Reach out, direct message via Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, or use the contact form on my website. And if I don't respond to your comment or your question on the podcast, I'll reach out via email or whatever format you reach out to me. I always think that it's worth taking the time to respond to somebody who's taking the time to reach out to me. All right. So fly fishers in particular, but most outdoors folk in general, do not have a lot of tolerance for invasive species. We look at animals and plants that have come into an ecosystem and and have had some sort of impact in a very negative light. And this is because we understand that there is a balance that exists in virtually every ecosystem that cannot and should not be disrupted because there's always going to be some sort of impact. But there's one species that we like to turn a blind eye to, and that is the brown trout. So if you've ever heard somebody say here in the United States or anywhere in North America for that matter, I caught a beautiful native brown trout in my local stream, they're wrong. Wrong, 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 wrong. They might have caught a very nice wild brown trout, but they did not catch a native brown trout because brown trout are not native to North America. 
I know this should be common knowledge, and I don't mean to make you feel bad if you didn't know this until now, but we should know this kind of thing. We should know the relative native range of brook trout of being essentially east coast and up into the Great Lakes, and cutthroat trout being, generally speaking, east slope of the Rocky Mountains, rainbow trout generally being the west slope of the Rocky Mountains. It's it's a pretty simple idea to grasp, and it's something that I think that most fly fishers with a mind towards conservation should know. But if you don't have all of those native species ranges nailed down in your head with those perfect little maps that you find in guidebooks, at least know that brown trout do not come from North America. Where do they come from? They come from Asia, Western Asia. They come from Northwestern Africa even. And they come from virtually all of Europe, including continental Europe and the islands. So uh, the United Kingdom and uh, Iceland. And they have a very wide range and a very wide variety of habitats. Think about, well, I don't know if we can think about, but conceptualize uh, the the historic range of brook trout on the east coast of the United States. They live in the streams that they primarily occupy now, high mountain streams, and they lived in places like Long Island and in some of the larger lakes and river systems that we find in the east coast. And so consequently, there's a very wide variety of habitats. And although there is not a lot of difference visually that you see between brook trout today, historically, there's a pretty wide variety of characteristics, visible characteristics between coloration, fin size, and body shape based upon where those fish were found up and down the east coast and then kind of east to west from the the mountains down into the the valleys and the larger rivers. So that was true for brook trout here in the east coast of the United States. That is true for brown trout in, let's just limit it to, to Europe, not to cut out the other parts of their native range, but that is very true for the fish that you find up in the British Isles and the fish that you find maybe in north uh, eastern Italy. There is a wide variety of body shapes and fin sizes and coloration. Uh, you have brown trout that are very silvery with lots of little black spots. You have brown trout that are dark gold and brown with very large red, black, and even bluish spots. And then there's all sorts of variations in between. It's really quite remarkable. If you go onto Google and do an image search of brown trout, the coloration and the style of fish shape that you're going to see is is incredibly diverse, which is an awesome thing that all these fish fall into the Samotrutta uh, um, taxonomy, but based on their environment, based upon the, the fact that you have incredibly isolated populations of this one species of fish throughout their native range, you're going to see a very wide variety of fish. And this is interesting because these fish were brought over to North America on purpose, um, both to Canada in kind of the mid part of the 19th century, the 1800s, and the United States in the later part of the 19th century, kind of the 1880s, uh, more or less. And they were brought from a couple of different places. Now, there are resources that have great speculation, some uh, some historical record on where these fish came from, but the primary stocks came from certain parts of Germany. So that is why you will historically see, and even today, you'll, you'll see brown trout referred to as German brown trout. 
So uh, genetically speaking, like from from the the species level, they are all brown trout. But the strain for the first fish that were brought over to the United States to New York hatcheries and to hatcheries in Michigan were German brown trout. But very, very soon thereafter, fish came from Scotland, from Loch Leven in particular, and these fish were known as Loch Leven brown trout. And so there is a little bit of a, a generalization when it comes to these fish that uh, the fish with smaller spots and uh, a little bit more streamlined body type are the German brown trout, and the fish that are a little bit more stocky, larger fins, bigger spots are the Loch Leven brown trout. And I think there's some credence to it. It's just that these fish came over sometimes to the same hatchery that each other came to. So there was both the German and the Scottish brown trout in the same hatchery. So I think there's a little bit of homogenization. I don't think that's what I've what I've read and and certainly what I've experienced through catching fish that are supposed to be of Loch Levin strain, but they look a lot like the fish that I've caught in a lot of other streams. But this homogenization kind of concept is something that uh, the late Dr. Uh, Bob Benke uh, wrote about, that he thinks that y you may have some selection going on with fish in streams today that might be you know 20 or 30 generations after those initial stocks, uh, or, or many, many more than that. Um, but generally speaking, a lot of the brown trout that we have in America are not kind of purebred from one particular place in Europe. But that actually may be advantageous for those fish's survival and the fact that brown trout have taken off so well in so many streams in the United States that they may have the best genetics from some of these isolated populations in Europe. Because anytime you introduce a species from one place to another place, unless it's a perfect fit, uh, it's not going to succeed. But if you have kind of a diversity of genetics that get placed into a, a new location, then those favorable characteristics are the ones that are going to be bred into that population. And so you find that. And this is why brown trout are so desirous and why, again, anglers generally, unless they're really, really damaging a, a wild trout population, um, are, are going to turn a blind eye to their invasive non-native status. So what's so great about brown trout? Brown trout can generally have higher temperature tolerances than than rainbows or brook trout. Uh, they grow very quickly. They become piscivorous. And again, these are all generalizations. You can always find populations of other species where they will trump the brown trout in these categories that I'm talking about. They will become piscivorous, so they will eat other fish. They will chase after streamers from a, a, a straight-up fly fishing perspective uh, more at smaller sizes. Um, they are aggressive, and you'll see this in the fact that they fight hard, in that they attack streamers. When you see big streamer-eating fish on social media, you don't see giant rainbow trout all the time. It happens, but you usually see big, angry, mean, hook-jawed brown trout, and so this is why we go after them. Brown trout are also great in that they quickly adapt to a couple of different styles of life. Brown trout thrive in the big tailwaters down south. Uh, in fact, that's where up, up until just maybe about 10 years ago up in Michigan, uh, the quote unquote world record was caught. But before that, the, all the biggest brown trout were coming from rivers in Arkansas. I mean, what a far cry from Germany. However, this is where the largest brown trout were being caught. And that's because they thrived in these fast, cold, river systems. But they also do well 
in the Great Lakes. There are populations of brown trout that are in and around the Great Lakes, Michigan, uh, Lake Erie, uh, and, and others, where they spend the most of their life swimming in the deep, cold, nutrient and forage rich waters of these lakes and they run up into the tributaries to spawn along with the introduced steelhead and some of the salmon that exists there and they grow to enormous sizes and they have really interesting characteristics and body forms you also have brown trout that have become anadromous that live on the east coast in particular that do spend time out in the ocean running up and down alongside stripers and blues and all other fish and then run up into creeks and small estuaries to spawn. There's not a lot of them. It's not to the point where they are um, really viable fisheries, but it's something that exists. And it's interesting because they really fill a similar niche to brook trout, where you had salter brook trout for really up up until the, the last century, and we still have them have them today, just in very, very low numbers. Again, not viable fisheries from a, like a sporting perspective, but brown trout fill that same niche. And that's actually one of the really interesting things that's that's both kind of exciting, but at the same time, uh, if, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, a little bit detrimental, the fact that brown trout and brook trout really share similar niches in a lot of the ecosystems that they're found in. And so you've probably seen pictures of tiger trout on uh, online. And this is when a um, lady brown trout makes her nest and a male brook trout comes in and fertilizes those eggs. Now, genetically speaking, the uh, brook trout and the brown trout are similar enough where they're able to crossbreed and create what is colloquially known as a tiger trout. Um, it can happen the other way around. But I don't think it's been recorded as happening in the wild. I think it's only happened in hatchery laboratory settings where you have a cross between a female uh, brook trout and a male brown trout. And those are called leopard trout. And again, all you have is a really interesting and intriguing uh, uh, coloration and a little bit of a, of a different body form. But you will find tiger trout in the wild. Um, they've, they've been caught up in Maine. They've been caught uh, down in Georgia. I mean, all over the place, pretty much anywhere you find a river system where the brook trout and the brown trout cohabitate, then you have the potential to find a tiger trout. But this is also where you run into problems because if the brown trout are and this is generally how it happens. Again, generalization. The brook trout have retreated to the upper reaches of streams. And why has this happened? This has happened because of logging. This has happened because of pollution. This has happened because of just other kind of stream degradation where the native population of brook trout has retreated up into the tiny tributaries. And fish are created in such a remarkable way that the populations are able to remain viable by adapting to these tiny little trickles where a mature fish is four or five inches long, and they're able to remain a viable population in these small streams while there is something like a flood under natural circumstances, a fire, or under unnatural circumstances, logging habitat degradation through development or whatnot. And so these brook trout, historically, when this has happened, especially over the last two and a half, three centuries in the United States, all the way from Maine down to Southern Appalachia, these brook trout have moved up into those higher, higher um, parts of these streams where they're able to find those, those places of refuge where they have not been touched because the, their terrain is so rugged. And then if left alone, as habitats begin to stabilize, 
and as humans have started to make better decisions in how we manage these resources, then those fish can and do move back out of those tributaries into the main branch of the stream and will eventually move as far down those stream systems as they are able. And for trout, that limiting factor is always going to be temperature and dissolved oxygen. So you're not going to find them in the slow, you know, carp water that you that those mountain streams run into once they get down into the valley floor. But you will find them in the larger portions of those streams as long as they can tolerate the temperature and they can tolerate the um, the dissolved oxygen and some other uh, factors. Then they're going to be there. So. Okay, why am I talking about brook trout so much? Well, when brown trout were introduced in so many of these streams, where were they placed? They weren't hauled by buckets, either by fingerlings or larger fish, all the way up into these upper recesses of these streams. The brown trout were introduced in these spots where people said, hey, this is a great place to catch fish. The water's cold. This is you know, a nice big pool. But the brook trout had been extirpated or, or driven out of these lower recesses of these mountain streams and this is where the brown trout were introduced and they took hold because again they fit and fill a very similar niche to brook trout in the environments where they are found and so you have the brook trout are coming down from the upper parts of the stream systems and the brown trout are coming up from the lower parts of the stream systems where they've been introduced easier access roads whatnot bridges and they are finding a place where they're meeting in the middle. So the cute part of them meeting in the middle is that you might see a little baby tiger trout. That's all fine and good. The problematic part of that is that it can and does limit where you will find brook trout moving down uh, from the, the upper recesses of those streams. They're not going to be able to have as much of a foothold in those lower parts of the stream where those streams have larger carrying capacity. They can hold more trout. They can produce larger trout. You know, you don't catch the 16-inch fish up where the stream is small enough for you to jump across. You catch those where it's big, deep pools that, you know, you could fit a, a bus in. And that's where the brown trout have taken up residence in most of these streams because they've been introduced. Is it good that there's fish? Yes. But this is kind of the, the, the dark side of the story. Um, this is also where we see the most problems. Now, in some of our larger river systems, again, uh, a river like the Tennessee Valley uh, authority rivers that you find down in, in, in the South. It, this is so um, artificial in in a certain sense that e it's easy to say, okay, whatever, throw rainbow trout in there, throw cutthroat trout in there. I don't care. You know, this is uh, smallmouth and uh, well, not even smallmouth water. I mean, this is probably like, you know, sucker and white bass water uh, originally. Um, but now that there's this giant dam in there, it is what it is. I think where brown trout are a little more problematic are these streams that are reserved or should be reserved for brook trout. Again, but this is this is hard because some of these fisheries and some fisheries I absolutely love, Spring Creeks in Pennsylvania, for example, um, where brown trout have been there since the well the entirety of the the 20th century and the the early the late part of the 19th century, and they've fit in very well in places where brook trout had had really either been completely removed or virtually removed from these streams. And the brown trout were able to take hold because they grew quicker, they were more advantageous, and they had a little bit of a higher tolerance to what was happening. 
So all that to say, this is a, that's a very, very brief history. And that's not meant to chastise you if you like catching brown trout, because I'm not going to turn my nose up at catching a brown trout. Again, there's some awesome big Eastern River tailwaters that I'm thankful there's brown trout in them. Um, in the, the Delaware River system, for example, um, in, in some of the, the larger rivers that we have around us here in um, New England, where the lower recesses have brown trout in them. And I just really don't think that we're in a position to get the rivers and the brook trout populations back to being viable anytime in the near future. So if there's some brown trout or some rainbow trout in them, it is what it is. But it's something to be aware of, particularly in those smaller streams. And I know that a lot of state fisheries organizations, um, wildlife conservation groups have made a lot of strides in being purposeful about what kind of fish they stock. And I would say, again, this is a little bit of a rant. I would rather them stock brown trout in the lower recesses of a stream that has a native brook trout population upstream than them put some generic brook trout strain in on the lower recesses that will eventually hybridize with that native untouched brook trout population. And now you've lost something that you can't recover. You're, you're going to be able to recover brook trout if there's brown trout in the stream. You're not going to be able to recover the, the native strain of brook trout if you introduce a non-native strain of brook trout into that same stream. So many facets to this. Uh, I guess this is really just kind of a, a brief history primer on, on brown trout. But they're a wonderful fish. They again, they they take to the fly so well. They are uh, very aggressive. They get large, and they are pretty. Um, for all the things that I said about homogenization of brook tr- or brown trout strains earlier in the podcast, uh, I, I have certain streams that I know I can go catch really golden, thick, creamy-bellied brown trout with giant spots. And then on the other side of the ridge, I can go and catch silvery brown trout with tiny little spots that uh, that are really more yellow and and bronze. It's just a remarkable fish that uh, I am going to say I'm happy is here that we have access to. I've had an opportunity to fish for them in Europe. And uh, it's it's so cool that I caught fish over there that look like no other fish I've caught in the United States and fish that I've caught that said that this could be a fish that is in my backyard stream in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, it's just a really cool thing to be come more familiar with. So where can you find out more information? Google it, right? Uh, some books that are, are great for, for this is anything that Dr., uh, the late Dr. Robert Banke has written. He is the was the world's foremost expert on salmonids, and he has a lot of great information on brown trout. Um, there are some great historical things that you can look into regarding the introduction of brown trout in the United States. And it's a great conservation story. Um, it's not all doom and gloom, like, oh, you know, some idiot made this great mistake in the 1880s by bringing this fish over. No, it's it's an interesting story of early conservationists and them trying to make their best efforts, uh, then they were also sporting anglers, kind of like most of us are today. So there's a lot of resources that are out there. Definitely check it out. And once you go down the rabbit trail of brown trout, it'll probably lead you to other fish and, and other stories like I talked about today. I mean, think about all the kind of uh, threads that are, are were left dangling and what I've talked about. And, um, brook trout introduction, um, Tennessee Valley Authority rivers. Um, I didn't touch on brown trout out west hardly at all, but I've caught brown trout in really high places in the Rocky Mountains. And that's a whole different story because they occupy a very different niche. Um, they spawn in the fall. A lot of those fish spawn in the spring. So completely different dynamic. All right. 
But I've talked for about 20 minutes, and uh, that is my self-imposed time limit when it comes to these podcasts. Do you have any thoughts, anything about brown trout that you'd like to hear about? Any other species of fish that you'd like me to talk about in the coming future? I'm happy to do that. And there's a Blue Kill podcast coming up. I'm, I'm excited about that. This week on castingacross.com, Monday's article was called Headwaters, Stories Following Rivers and Life. I talked to author Dylan Tomine about his new book called Headwaters, and this is a collection of articles, most of them published, some of them published for the first time in this piece, that he's written about his experience fly fishing all over the world. He's a Pacific Northwest guy. He has a family and he fishes with them. It was a great read. It's put out by Patagonia Publishers, and it's a really cool read because the different stories, although they're short stories, some of them only a page, some of them only half a page, some of them, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten pages, but they are placed chronologically. And so you can trace the arc of his life, the life of an angler, as well as the arc of him as a writer, which is really, very, really cool. Some awesome uh, topics that he covers, some just some some great short reads. So I definitely suggest that you check it out. So there is a link to the uh page on Patagonia Publishers where you can pick up Headwaters over at uh, castingacross.com if you go to that article. Wednesday's article is called Staring Skyward. Staring Skyward. So it's a picture of me looking up at the air on a flat in the Gulf with complete bewilderment. But that bewilderment shouldn't have been there because I did something dumb, not once, but twice. And I write about that. And I don't think I'm alone in doing dumb things more than once. So if you're interested in the dumb thing that I did that led my wife to catch me in this uh, delightful pose, then uh, definitely check out Staring Skyward over at castingacross.com. This week's recommendation on the podcast is VitaVoo's Inversion Sling. Now, I mentioned VitaVoo uh, recently with their fly wallets. That was maybe just last week, I think. So they get back-to-back recommendations. And I've probably recommend the Inversion Sling before. But the Inversion Sling is a great sling pack from VitaVoo that I use whenever I am in the saltwater and I'm wading deep. So it carries your gear up higher on your back. The gear rests about at your shoulder blades, um, but as all other VitaVoo packs, it's tight to your body. It's not going to move around the way that they're designed. It, it stays nice and snug. Um, and it's always going to be completely lateral when you swing it forward to get into your stuff. The great thing about this pack is that there is a waterproof zipper that is going to keep the bulk of your stuff totally dry. So for me, fishing in the choppy waters of the Gulf last week or here in a month or so when the stripers show up in New England and I'm standing deeper than I probably should and casting to, to stripers off the coast, it's going to keep my cell phone and some of my other stuff that I don't want wet dry. And there's other places to store things, flies and forceps, and uh, of course, a, a water bottle, but just a great bag. Again, it stores things higher. If you're shorter, like me, 5'7 on a good day, 5'9 in waiting boots probably, but it keeps you your gear a little bit uh, drier. And it's a nice compact bag made of uh, waterproof PVC and it's bulletproof. I mean, it's going to look new unless you spray zinc sunscreen on yours like I did. Now it's kind of got some cool little white streaks. But I will put a link to the inversion sling on the show notes for this page of the podcast on castingacross.com. And you can check them out, the different color options, and some of the other customization options that VitaVoo offers there. 
Thank you for listening to the Casting Across Live Stream Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.